Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting with Aaron Cameron. Both of us, of course, are with First National, and our guest today is also from First National. Welcome to the show, Jeremy Wedgeberry, Senior Vice President of Commercial Lending. Thank you. You're going to get a whole 45 minutes of First National commercial after this. So (laughs) I'm saying that out loud so that you don't turn us off. This is actually going to be interesting. We're working very hard not to make it a First National commercial. What we're going to talk about today really is just, well, maybe I'll back up. We've never had a lender on. Because Adam and I are lenders, it's hard to find a lender that we want to come on that isn't sort of promoting a competitor. And so we thought, let's have an episode where we are talking about the lending environment, the lending community, or the debt market, or what have you. But how do we do that? without having it too first nationally. And so we thought we'd bring on Jeremy Wedgbury, who is, quite frankly, all of our bosses as well, <laughs> to come on and talk about it without trying to make it too much about first national, really make it about the lending community. So stay tuned. This, is, this will be interesting. We're going to try really hard to make it interesting. It will be interesting. It will be interesting. Okay, fair. Um, so Jeremy, I mean, as always, uh, welcome to the podcast. But um, with our guests, we always kind of start with how did you get into the industry? What, what's the roots of your how you ended up where you are today? Great. Thanks, guys. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. I started out at a very difficult time in commercial real estate, quite frankly. I graduated from university in 1989, and uh, I knew that um, I really wanted to work in the the real estate business. There was, um, it was a really tough time in Canadian real estate. And so there were not a lot of opportunities. And quite frankly, most of my University friends and graduates were looking towards, you know, consumer goods, uh, Procter and Gamble, Coke, Pepsi, things like that. Uh, a little more exciting. I was focused on real estate, and uh, on my father's advice, my dad said, "Hey, reach out to as many people as you know and that I know that are in the real estate world, and um, find out what they do and how they do it, and what really interests them about the business, and determine whether you will like that business." and Ultimately, I did that. I just started dialing, and um, I was very fortunate to uh, connect with Sid Dakin, who ran uh, the equity portfolio of real estate at Manulife in the late 1980s. And I was able to get in to see him, and you know, he was excited to tell me about the business, and obviously said he could not get me a job, but that he could put my name in for something that might come up. And sure enough, a few weeks later, something came up, and. That started me off. I was on the on the real estate equity side of commercial real estate, but again, very very challenging time frame to enter the business, and consequently, not many people did uh, who were graduating from university at that time. So I view that as a bit of an opportunity for me, in that there, there just weren't a lot of people entering the business. But given the challenges in the business at the time, there weren't as many opportunities also within Manulife, and so quickly within a couple of years. I decided that I really wanted something more and there weren't that many opportunities on the equity side at that point and commercial mortgage side became available. And so I took a job. I went down to Kitchener, the KW office, Kitchener Waterloo, and uh, worked with with some great people that uh, continue to be in the business today. And and I learned a lot from them and it was great. And then, you know, I worked for seven years in, in that side of the business. And then I really had what I think was sort of the best opportunity in my career, which was to join the commercial mortgage-backed securities market in 1997. And Merrill Lynch had come to Canada. They were bringing this securitization technology to Canada on the securitization side. 
And we were really creating a business and we had to do everything, you know, from the perspective of marketing, legal documents, and creating a brand new business. And quite frankly, taking an American business and making it Canadian so that, you know, our Canadian borers would accept the product. And so therefore, I was involved in absolutely everything in the business. And uh, I mean, obviously, the history has been written on it. But the CMBS world was a great one for, you know, I had a great run until unfortunately, the credit crisis, which blew up the product. But it came back again. And uh, the Royal Bank continues to run a very strong business in that area right now. But that really gave me the opportunity. And then really, you know, to bring it forward to First National, Maury Taz approached me in 2004. And two things that he talked to me about was ramping up First National's CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities business, and also ultimately getting into a position of managing the overall group. And that's really what I've done over the last 14 to 15 years with uh, First National. You mentioned that the history of CMBS has been written. It's also been podcasted on. Dave Morrison did an episode on that exact topic. So if you are interested in the history of CMBS, we do have a good 45 minutes with Dave Morrison. I'll put a link in the show notes for anybody that wants to do a deep dive into that Episode topic. four, too. It's a long yeah, time ago. Way back. Yeah. So, Jeremy, that brings us up to the current day. You've obviously, uh, as promised to Maury, ramped up the First National business. So where are we today with First National in the, in the lending world? We're having a hard time with this just for our listeners because we all know the First National business so well. So we're trying to imagine what it would be like as a listener that has no idea who First National is and what we do. So maybe start with just kind of our general business platform. Yeah, sure. So today, the platform consists of about 150 people coast to coast, focused on the commercial mortgage business. Current volumes, we did $6.2 billion of new originations in 2018, on target to have a, a similar or better year in 2019. And you know the mortgage book, which is really what runs the business at the end of the day, is the servicing of this commercial mortgage portfolio is very fast approaching $30 billion. And so, you know, we would definitely be the largest servicer of commercial mortgages across the country. And that leads into really the question around, you know, where does the business sit for us today? Effectively, what has been built over 30 years, but I think really in the last 10 to 15 years, which would, you know, we changed quite, Coinc- quite Coincidentally, right when Jeremy joined. Yeah. <laughs> 10 to 15 years. <laughs> yeah. You know, the platform was really changed from the perspective of, um, I mean, I really think we institutionalized the business that we ran. One of the things that we do is we originate and underwrite loans and then ultimately service loans for as many investors across the country as we can. And right now we have probably 20 to 25 active institutional and private investors who are effectively looking to make an investment in commercial mortgages, but don't necessarily in all cases have a platform to go out and originate high quality mortgages with high quality borrowers. And in a nutshell, that is really what we've done for many of our investors. And so over the last 10 years, we've really taken the platform. And I guess, you know, from my experience and from many other people's experience at First National, you know, we've taken what we've learned at, you know, the major lending institutions in the country and adapted that to our business so that, you know, when our investors come to us and say, you know, I'd really like to do $250 million of five-year conventional business this year, very quickly, we can distill it down so that we exactly understand where they're looking for it to come from, you know, which geographies, which asset types, how they'd like it underwritten. And um, so that we are very much toe-to-toe with them when they underwrite these loans. 
and that when they receive them, they can look at a, a very, very complete credit package and just make an approval. And so it becomes a very fluid investment process for them. No different than them buying a bond or buying equity in a company. That's really the way we view it is that we are a source for them of high quality commercial mortgages. And to add on to that, Jeremy, if I will, one of the beautiful things about our structure is those different capital sources, the 20 or 25 investors, they all play in different segments of the market. So First National, as a, sort of this distribution platform, we see every single type of asset class and every single type of mortgage opportunity under the sun, effectively, whether it be from land to retirement homes, to development, to bridge loans. You kind of have a really good sense of what the market looks like in all different segments and all different jurisdictions. I think that's a great point, Aaron. You know, one of the things is that I've seen over my career is that the business has changed so dramatically. And, you know, in the late 1980s, it was a market that was dominated by life insurance companies. And at the time, I'm not sure the exact number, but there were probably 75 to 100 active life insurance companies. So that meant you had a very fragmented lending environment. You effectively had 75 different people trying to bid on commercial real estate transactions as investment assets for their life insurance company. And when you have 75 active investors, it gets very, very competitive. And in our world, you know, you compete on price, which is the spread you charge over, say, the Government of Canada bond, if that's the index you use. And then also the structuring on the loan. And what happened in the late 80s was that not only was the price fairly cheap overall, but the structuring became very, very aggressive. And that caused a lot of problems in the late 1980s you, in terms of mean, losses. What do you mean by structuring? Well, so structuring the loan, you know, just in terms of the loan to value, the amount of equity that you require your borrower to have, it was fairly common in, in the late 1980s to be doing deals on the basis of income that was going to come in the future. So maybe future lease up that was going to take place. So underwriting deals, you know, I think today I would say the underwriting parameters that we use is very much cash flow based. So how much cash flow is in place? And if it's not in place today, fairly comfortable that it's going to arrive in the next 12 to 24 months. And so it's just a different way of underwriting it. And so basically that this life insurance situation of 75 investors through mergers and bankruptcies and the likes, you know, we ended up today where we probably have half a dozen to a dozen life insurance companies in Canada, and, and many of those don't invest in commercial mortgages. So that whole environment has changed very dramatically. Also, the Canadian chartered banks came in and, and they started to become very large lenders in commercial mortgages across the country. Then we had CMBS that joined in 1997, but then we saw that exit again in 2007 after the credit crisis. And then we've seen that, you know, the credit unions become very, very active participants in the commercial mortgage space. And so now you've got a fairly fragmented set of investors again across the country. Going back to your question, Aaron, and your comment was that one of the things that we're capable of doing is because we believe that many of our investors have very different interest rate and coupons that they expect to achieve on their investment in a commercial mortgage. Some of them need higher returns than others do just based on their cost of funds. And we believe that you can still find high quality mortgages at higher interest rates, but you need to look for some other things in, in the loan. And that might involve, you know, very high quality sponsors, things like that. So it's the structuring that we do on a loan while still achieving certain interest rate returns for our investors. And that, that's what First National does today is that we listen to our investors, try and get a sense of their risk tolerance, but also match that up with the returns that they're looking for. And, and that's, that's really a, a major trick to our business. And on the flip side, you've got borrowers who may need different products at different times for different assets. And so they they don't need to go to multiple lenders. How does that work? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, again, by listening to our clients, sorry, when I say clients, I mean our borrowers, we listen to their needs effectively. And as long as we think that their ask, their need request makes sense to us and it ultimately will provide for a stable commercial mortgage investment, we will look to it to structure that deal. And we may structure it horizontally, meaning that we will have one investor that goes in up to a certain leverage point, say 60, 65, 70%. And then we may well be putting another mortgage note behind that, or we may combine it into all one loan. And at the end of the day, we get the ultimate product that the borrower needs to do the deal. But we also get our investors the appropriate level of return and the level of risk based on the loan to value that they're putting in place. You know, back to one of the comments you made earlier about, maybe you didn't say this, but I'll put words in your mouth, this conservative approach to lending in comparison to what it was like, you know, maybe 25, 30 years ago. Do you have any sense why that is? I mean, you hear that kind of regularly that the Canadian commercial market remains fairly conservative, which helped us in 2008 during the challenges then. But we still kind of for whatever reason, as a group, I don't think on purpose, but we are conservative, you know, I think, in comparison to... We'll talk to an American and they will yeah. tell you flat out we're conservative. Do you, why? Do you have any sense why that is? How we end up maintaining that sort of conservative approach to lending? You know, I mean, I think it's definitely Canadian culture, first and foremost. I mean, working at Merrill Lynch, I think that they definitely had, whether it was Merrill Lynch or other U.S. lenders that we would see active in the U.S., were definitely more aggressive than we were prepared to be. Most of my Merrill Lynch colleagues uh, that I worked with had come from banks and life insurance companies in Canada. So we had the same sort of methodology to the way that we looked at it. I mean, I don't want to give ourselves too much of a pat on the back. I think that the reality is we've also had a bull market for 20 plus years in commercial real estate. I will say that part of the business that was underwritten in the early CMBS days, call it 1997 through to 2000, that very much benefited, I believe, from being the bottom of the commercial real estate market based on the, on the very challenging late 1980s and early 1990s in Canada. So I think you know, having a, a strong bull market behind you really, really helps. So even if there were some loans that were made that maybe weren't the best loans at the time, I think the fact was that there was always a, a ready participant to come in and buy a property that may have gone into default over that time frame. Like I sort of view the last 20 years as default situations will happen, I think, at all times in commercial mortgages. But if you ended up with a defaulted loan over the last 20 years, there probably were some things you would look back and see, yeah, I think I made a mistake on that one, you know, more than normal. So we can't talk about lending without talking about the recent uh, bond drop, a very rapid uh, bond drop. I think we're 40 beeps in the last couple of weeks, at least. Just for time's sake, it is August 20th today, and it is a moving target where you know, we are. Adam and I hate doing that because you never know when these episodes will get released, depending on scheduling. Because we're going to talk about bond markets, we're going to say today is August 20th. We'll get this out as quickly as possible. While it's fresh. Yeah, yeah while it's fresh. Yes. What has it done to the marketplace? Because now you know, we're talking about interest rates that are the lowest we've seen since probably 2016. And prior to then, it have been a long time before we saw anything like this. So how is the market responding on both the investor side, mortgage investor side, and borrower side? Yeah. And I, and I think that the date, I mean, is almost a little irrelevant because no matter how you look at it, if you compare it to this time last year, you know, we've seen 100 to 125 basis points get shaved off the Government of Canada bond yields. So if you look at the five or 10 year Government of Canada bonds, you know, we're in the 120s right now. And, you know, if we looked a year ago, you know, you're well in the 240s and 250s. So, you know, to put that in context, every mortgage lender adds a spread on top of that Government of Canada bond. So, you know, we were looking at a year ago, we were looking at conventional deals being done in the low to mid 4% range. So four and a quarter to four and a half, let's say. 
well, you just, you knock a hundred basis points off that, and that has a dramatic effect on the ability to finance a property. So there's just more cash flow available to underwrite. Likewise, on our CMHC business, we obviously do a lot. We're the largest CMHC lender in the country. It's had also a tremendous impact. Those interest rates are even lower than the conventional ones that I described earlier. So it's had a huge impact and it's come very, very rapidly. I think more rapidly than many would have thought. On the investor side, you know, I can speak again on behalf of the the many investors that we invest uh, their capital into commercial mortgages. You know, the further these bond yields fall, the more challenging it becomes for them to get a return that makes sense for their investments. So where we are today at, you know, sort of that 120 range for a conventional mortgage in the market these days, I call it 180 to 220 over Canada's you end up with a very low bond yield that puts yourself, you know, in in the low 3% range. And remember, in a commercial mortgage, there's two sides to the trade. You've got a borrower that needs to borrow that money and hopes to pay it back over the amortization of that mortgage. But the flip side is you've got an investor in that mortgage, and that could be a bank, a life insurance company, and they are making investment in that. They're putting their money to work for five or 10 years, and they're looking at that return. So, the lower these bond yields go, it starts to take people out of the market from an investment standpoint because they're just not getting the return that they're comfortable with. One of the things we see in the commercial mortgage space that both of you have seen, of course, before is mortgage floor rates. You know, And so that's where we have investors in the marketplace who say, I am not prepared to lend my money at anything less than, say, 3.5%. So Basically, what they're saying is they don't care where the government of Canada bond goes. They will not put their money out at anything less than 35 I will say, you know, this most recent drop in bond yields, we haven't seen floor rates kick in yet, but it could very well be something. Take some time for the brains to make decisions and things. And for context, you know, if you take the pension funds or life insurance companies or there's investment managers that are also participating in, in commercial debt, they're comparing it to their other fixed income assets, right? The commercial mortgage is just one sliver of their investment portfolio. So if it starts to get out of whack with what the returns that they're getting on other components of their investment, the need for a floor is almost imperative just to keep it in line or quite frankly, just not lend at all, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, when you look at the spectrum of, of investors that are out there, I mean, we think in terms usually of, you know, we have spread lenders like the banks, you know, they so they raise funds with their customer base and that can be demand deposit accounts, things like that. And that gets put into a bucket that gets a certain return and they're looking for a spread over that business. So they can tend to move with the market down. We have other investors you know, maybe who raise money out of the GIC market. And sometimes that doesn't move down quite as quickly. So that impacts it. Uh, And then we have sort of all-in return investors like a pension fund or some of the investment funds that we deal with. They just have a, a return that they're ultimately looking to do. And that, as you say, Aaron, that adds into their equity returns and their bond returns. So it, it all gets factored in. I mean, the good news I'd say is that most investors these days, though, they, investors that are looking to put their money into commercial mortgages, they are looking for diversification of their portfolio. So as much as they could say, look, I may well look more towards triple B corporate bonds right now to get the kind of returns that I want. At the end of the day, they are always looking to have some exposure to real estate, some exposure to equity, some exposure to corporate bonds. And so the good news, I mean, one of the things I will say is that what we've seen on both the real estate equity side, so the buyers of real estate And on the debt um, investment side, many of these institutions are increasing their allocation towards real estate. I mean, I think that's been a very positive change that we've seen over the last five to seven years is that we're seeing many of these 
whether it be pension funds um, or the likes, they're saying like they want more exposure to real estate. And so that's been very, very positive for us. For reference sake, I think the numbers over the last kind of five or six years have moved. It used to be in the six, 7% of the portfolio, and now they're cresting into uh, mid to low teens. Is that about uh, accurate? That's right. Yeah, okay. exactly. Is it having an impact on pricing? Are you seeing that with more money? You'd think that would have an impact on the, on the, the return that the market's getting. You know, I, I think that it is. I mean, although the flip side of that is that, you know, we are seeing this interest rate, I guess the reduction that we're seeing in interest rates overall is playing into that also. I mean, I think that, you know, it'd be fair to say that today, if you look at certain markets and, and let's look at multifamily because that's our biggest product we're active in. If you go to the major markets, uh, say Toronto for an asset, I mean, it would be very common to see a 4% cap rate, a four and a quarter, maybe even something that touches a three. For a stabilized asset, that's for something where they know where the cash flow is, you know, and that's probably lower than we would have seen previously. So, and I think that is driving into greater allocation towards the industry, but also these low interest rates that they can get, they can still get positive leverage buying something at that level. We used to hear the number of, you know, don't really want to be sub five, but it's very, very common to see investment funds and pension fund investors in real estate looking into the fours right now. We talked quite a bit about the bonds. I guess the other aspect that's worth mentioning is the yield curve. Can you do a yield curve 101 and then how it's impacting longer term mortgages? So the yield curve that we've traditionally seen in any normal economic environment would be that long-term bond yields are higher than short-term, and which shows ultimately that there will be growth in the overall market. When things start to get challenging, ultimately that the economy is starting to look challenged for growth and inflation and things like that, you will start to see a flattening of the yield curve. And that's what we've seen over the last little while. So, And in fact, we've even seen the inversion of the yield curve, which means really the short-term interest rates are higher than the long-term interest rates. And that's what we hear about a lot in the papers these days, a lot of chatter around that because it, it is generally considered to be a precursor for a recession that's coming in the future. I won't talk too much about that, but more about the impact that this has had on the commercial mortgage market. And I can tell you from a, a CMHC standpoint, it's had a very pronounced impact on us. I can tell you about what we've seen. Traditionally, we would do something in the neighborhood of about $3.5 billion to $4 billion a year of insured, CMHC insured multifamily lending in Canada. And if I focus just on the term business that we do in that category, call it $3.5 billion of term business. It's very common for us, you know, our go-to products would be five years and 10-year term mortgages for our clients. And many clients just have, have strategies in terms of the terms that they want to take on their mortgage. So it would be very common for us to lend $3.5 billion and see a split of 50-50 between the two terms or 60-40 or even 70-30. The impact of the yield curve flattening on us really means that a borrower of ours can come in and borrow for 10 years on a CMHC insured basis and end up with an interest rate that is fairly commensurate with a five-year. So, And for reference sake, when I started in 2012, the gap was about 80 beeps difference in the all-in rates. Right. And, and now I think it's, that's uh, a fairly healthy gap, I think, between the two. And so today we're dealing with even a slight inversion where the five-year is slightly higher than the 10-year. So the impact on us in our business has been that, you know, most borrowers look at that and say, first of all, any of them that have been in the business long enough will say, holy smokes, I've never seen interest rates that look like this. And therefore, they will say, I'm going to take as much 10-year money as I can, so lock me down. And so one of the things we've just seen is that so many of our borrowers are pushing for 10-year. And so we've seen a real move towards, you know, maybe a split of something that looks more like 80-20 for us right now. And, uh, between, and so, the, between the 10-year and the 5-year, election of 
of the term, right? It's That's 80, right. 80% tenure. That's right. And again, I'll go on to another change in the business is that previously in the early 2000s, let's say CMHC insured financing was dominated by the life insurance companies. And now we're seeing that uh, more of it is funded by securitizers and First National falls into that category. CMHC has a program called the Canada Mortgage Bond, and uh, it is a securitization vehicle that we use. And it probably has a capacity in the 10-year space of eight to eight and a half billion dollars per year. And so that's the maximum capacity that can go into that. Across the country for all lenders. That's not a first national number. That's That's just, that's just the Canadian absorption amount. That's right. And so that's a fairly finite resource. And so obviously a shift, even that we see just in our portfolio, I'm sure that our competitors are seeing it in their portfolios and therefore it's just putting a more pronounced demand side equation for us. So that's one of the things we're seeing. And likewise, the impact will be similar to conventional lenders in the marketplace because, again, their borrowers and our investors that are looking to put money out, borrowers will be saying, I'll just take 10-year conventional money today over the five-year money. And so, again, there will just be a lot more demand there. So I, I think that um, there's going to be a bit of a, of a little time period here to, to get adjusted to how, it. How is the market adjusting? Have you, have you noticed anything yet? You know, we're starting to see widening spreads um, just because of the demand. And we're also, so it can fall back to the position where some of the investors, whether they be banks or life insurance companies say, these all-in returns just aren't enough for us. So that's one thing, but there can also be the concept that if I raise my spreads a little bit, it will start to force people back to other products that I might have. And at First National, a specific response would be that we've also launched 15 and 20-year product to relieve some of the pressure on the 10-year and also to facilitate people taking advantage of lower bond yields now and locking in for 15, 20 years, if that's the kind of time horizon that the investment uh, can deal with. That's right. We always try to find innovative ways to continue to serve our clients. And I've just described that there's a finite source of 10-year money. So one of the things that uh, we're obviously encouraging some of our clients, particularly ones that are considering maybe selling their property in the future, you know, we will talk to them about taking a five-year term. And quite frankly, we've had a fairly robust demand for five-year product this year. So we're very pleased to see that. But certainly still, it's a predominant request to go 10 years. We looked at the 15 and 20-year markets and, you know, again, using our technology and with the support of our treasury group, we looked to the 15 and 20-year CMHC insured programs also. And so that's something that we've just started to offer to our clients. We just closed a fairly large transaction and we think with, you know, strong support for our five-year and the strong volumes that we have already for 10, adding 15 and 20 to it, we think we'll be able to still satisfy all of our clients. So we've been kind of dancing around it with interest rates coming down. And we've sort of mentioned what we've seen with the impact it's had on cap rates, but particularly in Toronto right now, you know, let's stick to apartments because that's probably the easiest one to kind of conceptualize. We've seen interest rates come down over the last year. We've seen cap rates come down, but we're seeing cap rates sometimes with the two handle. And that, you know, people say, well, no way, that's a real cap rate. Maybe explain what we're seeing in the marketplace and, and what that two cap really means. That's a great question, Aaron. I mean, I think that one of the biggest challenges that I've seen over my career in commercial real estate is the use of cap rates and the comparability of cap rates. I mean, first of all, even establishing a cap rate 
requires that you get a fairly solid handle on what the net operating income is of the property. That is such an important piece to this. And the reality is when you have a vendor and you have a purchaser, it's it's very often that they have different NOIs and different cap rates that they have in mind. And they can gap out by 50 basis points at times. And so, and yet you hear other people say, well, my property is now worth this because of that. So I think it's it's always really challenging. And so part of what we've seen is First of all, just an insatiable demand for apartment buildings in general right across the country. And, you know, that speaks to many of the things we talked about earlier was, you know, all the pension fund money coming into the business and the like. There is certainly more demand on the equity side just to buy this real estate. But the flip side of that equation is that because vacancy rates are so low and rents are rising and there is an opportunity, which we've seen really from coast to coast, quite frankly, renovated apartment suites in older apartment buildings you know, you can increase your rents anywhere from $200 to $700 per suite per month. So it gives owners of, of apartment buildings a great incentive to either renovate their suites or buy a building that is underperforming. And I don't mean underperforming from a vacancy standpoint. I just mean from the rent that's obtainable on the units. And so what we're seeing is many people will buy buildings and you will hear about cap rates at two and a half and 2.75 and things like that. But I can assure you that is not the stabilized return that those investors are hoping to receive over time on that apartment purchase. And in many cases, it's a whole algorithm of, you know, how much do I need to spend? How much can I move my rents up? And ultimately, what does my stabilized income look like in the future? And so I would say with most of those deals, I'm I'm less interested in the going in cap rate and more about the stabilized maybe three to four years down the road. And so, and I, and I'm still of the belief that, you know, something in the mid fours is probably something that most people are trying to achieve. And that leads us to another kind of same topic, but that ability to roll those rents seems to be becoming a little bit more challenging. You want to talk about what you're seeing right now with that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of discussion of affordability right across the country. And, you know, there's a lot of focus of the government to help deal with affordability. And, and, you know, quite frankly, we're very involved in affordable construction and things like that. That's become a very large product for us. But there's no question that we're seeing many older buildings. I mean, they are getting renovated to a certain extent, but we're seeing rents start to rise in these buildings. And so I, I, we do think at some point, particularly for cities like Toronto, Vancouver, and maybe Montreal, will may get there also. But we get to the point where most buildings start to get renovated and therefore there just isn't room for the tenant that really needs that affordable rent. And, you know, something that looks like $1,000, you know, a suite is a, per month as opposed to the $2,000. You know, if you look at the new construction that's being built in Toronto, I mean, it's, you know, in most high quality, well, really high quality locations, you're seeing $4 a square foot as an achievable rent on property. And then if you go to maybe a secondary location, you're seeing very comfortably a $3 a foot rent. And for anybody who's not really tuned into apartments, that means you're paying $4,000 a month for a 1,000 square foot apartment building, which is... Or even more, I mean, same ratio, but $2,000 a month for 500 square feet, which is, that's not a very big space, right? You can't raise a family in that. No, you cannot. And I think really what that means is, is you're having... I guess maybe an adjustment where you could roll 20% of the building, you know, you could retrofit suites 20% of the time and and do that over a a shorter period of time. But now it's taking longer, presumably because you can't get people out in the first place because there's no place for them to go a similarly affordable rent. That's right. Yeah. No. And and I think, you know, for us, when we underwrite these deals, a lot of it depends on the sponsor, you know, have they done this before? I mean, that's really important to our approach overall is the quality of the borer and the sponsor that we're dealing with. So have they had experience 
turning rents over. But then I think it's really important to look at the building and, and establish, first of all, how long have the tenants been there? I mean, the reality is, if the tenants have been there 10 years or longer, you may not be able to move them out because it's going to be very challenging for them to go to a neighboring property or a nearby property in the, in the neighborhood and achieve something close to the rent that they're paying now. So we think this affordability is going to become more of an issue over time. And it's going to, there will be certain buildings that get purchased with the hopes of rolling over something like 20% a year. But in in actual fact, it may end up in the 5 to 10% range. And so we have to be very careful with that with our underwriting because ultimately the takeout loan that we would be looking for, and usually it would be a CMHC loan, will depend on how many rents get rolled over and how much they're able to increase that. And and we've seen situations across the country where borrowers have been unpleasantly surprised by not being able to roll enough. That said, we've also seen many that have been very successful with it. And to a certain extent, they are providing higher quality accommodation. I mean, they're not brand new buildings, but their in-suite looks in some cases very much like a condominium. You know, maybe doesn't have the amenities of some of the condominium buildings, but in suite, it's uh, they're very high quality. Aaron and I are both big believers that supply is the solution to affordability. So, where do, do we see our construction volume right now in terms of of lending? Yeah, this was a big focus of ours about three years ago. We really started to put concerted effort into driving the volumes of our business because we could see that it was that it was coming and it was coming from coast to coast. I mean, and, and every market is different. And that's why, you know, we really believe, you know, you need to have boots on the ground. You need to have regional representation because, you know, Halifax is not behaving like Victoria is. They're just totally different markets and you need to really understand, you know, what's going on in those markets. So, you know, most definitely I think supply is important, but, you know, one of the things I would say is I really think supply is, is most important and most pronounced in Toronto and Vancouver. And unfortunately, given the cost of construction, it is challenging to get rental built. And the buildings that are being built are anywhere from, you know, $3 a square foot in rent. So, you know, going back, you know, at, at 700 square feet, you're talking $2,100 or $4 a square foot, you're pushing close to 3000 or more. These are not affordable rents by any stretch. But I think, you know, Adam, you're probably right from the perspective that the more supply gives more opportunity, people will move up and it will it will open opportunities in the lower buildings. But, you know, I think we need a tremendous amount of supply, particularly in, in markets like Toronto and Vancouver, before we're going to see any meaningful impact. But I will say, you know, we've seen construction from coast to coast. Many of our clients that had predominantly been condominium developers in the past have decided that they want to hold these assets for the long haul. And particularly if they're sitting on sites that they consider to be trophy sites, they're deciding that they don't want to just sell them off as condominiums and take the profit and move on. So our pipeline for construction is in the neighborhood of $2 billion of committed facilities for construction. And so I do think we're helping out with the supply side, but I I still believe we need a whole lot more. It's a lot more to do for sure talked a lot about apartments, but you know that's only about 60% of our book. The other 40% is all commercial. So do you want to talk about maybe what you're seeing in the retail market? That's a really kind of funny space right now and still can be active, but how are we approaching it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think retail is an interesting one. And, and, and do recall that our, our whole model is you know on behalf of First Nationals balance sheet and investors. And so we have to be mindful of what our, our debt investors are looking for in terms of, of their credit 
criteria. So some of the things that I'll say is really what's important to our investors. Retail, I mean, I I am still a believer in retail ultimately, but I I just, I do believe there are challenges on the horizon. And so it just requires us to, to do a whole lot more due diligence on the property, due diligence on our board, make sure they've got the capacity. And I do worry about things like the ability to find inflation in those rents over time, when some of these retailers are going to be struggling to keep their businesses going when they they face you know sort of non bricks and mortar type retailers so it makes it for a more complicated underwriting scenario because there's a lot more you have to think about whereas the flip side is if i if i look at multifamily or industrial right now you know we're seeing quite large inflation in rents and so you know it's easier to get comfortable with growing cash flows over time as opposed to, okay, wait a minute, which of these tenants aren't going to survive in the long term? That said, you know, we're still very active in, in retail, but it, it just takes it takes a lot more care. And I will say it takes more time with our investors to make sure that they're going to be comfortable. And I would say in some cases, they're just not comfortable and, with it. Curiously, almost the flip of what we were discussing with, with the apartment cap rates, we're seeing with the retail cap rates where our borrowers are already identifying that rents likely are going to come down. And so just because of the market forces, I will buy it at a six and a half cap, assuming it turns into a five and a half cap in two years when the leases start to roll. So they're still financing at historical low interest rates, still getting that leverage return, but they're adjusting for the fact that the cash flow is likely going to decrease, not increase. That's right. So Jeremy, you mentioned that we lend coast to coast. Of course, that does not just mean Toronto and Vancouver. There is a whole wide world of Canada out there. Are we finding struggles lending in uh, B markets or tertiary markets? No, I mean, I think it takes a lot more care as soon as you move outside of that. I mean, the reality is there's just a much higher degree of liquidity when you're dealing in, in the major markets in Canada. I think it's really, you know, when we start to go to the secondary markets and the tertiary markets, you know, we're, we're very much following borrowers there. And so we're really looking for sponsors. So it really starts with the sponsorship side. And then we start to look at the asset. I think that's really important uh, to the overall process. But remembering that we deal with many investors from coast to coast, you know, we can be dealing in Atlantic Canada with a local investor who understands that really well and may look to a secondary market and, and may even want to support the secondary market. So. But it just means that we have to be a lot more careful. I mean, CMHC supports secondary and tertiary markets. And so, you know, I mean, I think multifamily is well bid right across the country. And so when we follow into all of those markets, if you start to get into retail um, and things like that, we will certainly go to some of those markets. But again, we'd want to be very careful. Industrial can be a little bit more challenging just because the size of those markets, they don't have very liquid industrial markets in some cases. So we just have to be more careful. So, you know, for us, I mean, it's really about making sure that we think we have a home for the deal when we start talking to our borrowers. So we we tend to validate the borrower first and then start to work on the assets. So there's still liquidity there. And again, that's where credit unions come in very, very helpful in the overall business. They know these markets, they know them, they lend into them. In many cases, they even know these borrowers. So they can be great sources of support to secondary and tertiary markets. Jeremy, I want to thank you. And I hope that uh, everybody enjoyed three lenders talking lending for uh, for most of an hour. And uh, if you know Jeremy personally, mention to him how much you enjoyed this episode because it'd be great for the podcast as a whole. Jeremy, we want to thank you a lot. We want to sponsor on. next year. We're first national sponsorships on the, on the block still. Thanks guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP 
holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.